This episode of Good Morning Nancy contains discussions on sex and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. Abby and I have been friends since the day she was born. We both love drinking coffee and talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. You can find our episodes, blog posts, merch, and more by going over to goodmorningnancy.com. We work really hard on these episodes and do a lot of research. Show us how much you appreciate our work and head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. Remember, that's morning with an O-U. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about the 1975 deep sea thriller and arguably one of the most famous movies of all time, Jaws. It was directed by Steven Spielberg with a screenplay by Carl Gottlieb and Peter Benchley. The screenplay is based on Benchley's popular novel of the same name, and it stars Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfuss, and Lorraine Gary. David Brown, a producer at Universal Pictures, heard about Benchley's up-and-coming novel Jaws in 1973 when he read a detailed article about the book in Cosmopolitan. The last line of the article said that it would, quote, make a good movie, unquote. Hmm. Mm. That was enough validation for Brown. He and producer Richard Zanuck immediately bought the rights to the novel before it was even released. Once it was released, the two of them bought copies and read the book within a night. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think it's a very small book. No, I don't think so either. Speed readers. Yeah. Well, they probably <laughs> thought we bought the rights. We better figure out what it's about. Yeah. <laughs> Jaws, the novel, when it was released in 1974, was a huge commercial success, and it was the number one book for weeks. This came as a huge surprise to Benchley, who said, I knew that Jaws couldn't possibly be successful. It was a first novel, and nobody reads first novels. It was a first novel about a fish, so who cares? The book's success gave the producers even more hope that their new movie would be a hit. Steven Spielberg, who was just 27 at the time, and and with only one theatrically released film, showed interest in directing Jaws, but producers Brown and Zanuck had set their sights on someone else. Hmm. In the early stages of production, Universal hired a director who shall remain anonymous. Oh. (laughs) I don't know who it is. Uh, Nobody knows unless you, I guess, were in that board meeting. Wow. Yeah. In the first meeting with the producers and with Peter Benchley about the film, the nameless director said something along the lines of, And I have this vision of, you know, the camera coming out of the water, and then we see the hump of the whale. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. Benchley looked at the producers worriedly, and Zanuck said, You mean shark, right? (laughs) Benchley didn't want to hire a director who couldn't distinguish a whale from a shark. Oh, my God. So they fired that director, and they brought in Steven Spielberg. Little did they know that a film with so many horrible issues, which we'll talk about soon, would be such a major success. The film was a commercial and critical hit, earning over 
470 million in today's money at the oh box office. Yeah. Thankfully for Spielberg and the rest of the cast and crew at Universal, everybody, and I mean everybody, loved it. Mm-hmm. Professor Mark Lapadula of Yale University did an interview with ScreenPrism.com about Jaws's success, and he said, quote, I teach about films that changed America. This was a film that changed America in a number of ways. It set up a whole new distribution pattern, a whole new marketing strategy for films. It was the first real summer blockbuster. The industry was declining, 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 and then suddenly, here comes Jaws. (laughs) No movie had ever made over a hundred million dollars at the box office. That's so wild. Yeah, and Jaws makes over... 260 million domestically at the box office and that's in that day's money right critic author knight of the hollywood reporter said that jaws is quote perhaps the most perfectly constructed horror story in our time yes unquote yeah so with that said abby could you please remind us all of the plot yeah so the citizens of amity are are being terrorized by a 25 foot man-eating great white shark The local sheriff enlists the help of a young oceanographer named Hooper after the shark claims several of the community's citizens, including a young girl who went skinny dipping. There was a small boy that got eaten on the 4th of July. And also a local boater is attacked by the shark. So Hooper claims that this shark is gigantic and it's the biggest one that he's ever known or he hasn't really seen, but seen before. So they try to work as fast as they can to catch the shark, and as the local fishermen rally to hunt and kill the giant man-eater, they fail. The sheriff turns to an experienced fisherman named Quint to put an end to the shark's reign of terror. However, the shark has other plans. So as the sheriff, Hooper, and Quint sail out into the open water to kill the man-eater, it literally sinks their boat and kills Quint by basically swallowing him alive. Yeah. (laughs) So the film draws to a close as Sheriff Brody throws a can. It's like a scuba diving tank, I think. He, yep. like, yeah, it's like an air tank. Yeah, he throws it into the shark's mouth and then like shoots him from way, way, way far away with a sniper rifle. And the shark explodes in the water. And that's the end. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a pretty wild ride. You know, and I want to comment on that ending, I guess, in the book, which I have not read. No, but in the book, the shark, or he's poisoned, which is in the movie, right? Because they try to do that in the movie with like he tries to like go in the shark cage or whatever and like lethally inject him with a harpoon, yeah, or something, yeah. Yeah. So, so that happens in the book, and then (laughs) Steven Spielberg was like, so. I just don't feel like that's going to work for the movie. Not very cinematic. I can see why he approached Benchley and was like, look, your book is great and your screenplay is okay, but I really think this needs to end differently. I really think this needs explosions. (laughs) But you know what? That's so like a blockbuster. Yeah. Anyway, like nowadays, when we think of blockbusters where Jaws was the first one, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, of course it needs to end in explosions. (laughs) Yes. I would have been really bummed if it was just like a shot of the shark like sinking to the bottom of after Although that would be it. super creepy though. That would be creepy. Just like watching this shark like hey, would it I'll sink? I'll be back. 
like the creature yeah mm. but would it sink or would it float oh right well what happens to whales they get like washed up on the beach whales right? float they do so, right. yeah because i've seen videos of sharks eating dead like um blue whales and it's just like a buffet but it's like wait a frenzy, and it's floating Sh- um whales have blowholes though so they breathe like air so they I have mean, sharks have, have nostrils right do they i think they do i honestly I don't know <laughs> what i'm talking about hooper we need you <laughs> wait a minute we need an oceanographer jeez uh okay <laughs> anyway let's move on jeez um <laughs> we are not scientists we've said this before <laughs> all we do is drink coffee and talk about moves. <laughs> That's what we know. I mean, I try to stay away from sharks, so <laughs> as much as possible. That's just that's just me, though. Okay, so let's talk about the Bechtel test. It actually passes, which shocked me. I actually started writing our script for today with it not passing. And then I watched it a second time, and I noticed that it does because uh, Mrs. Brody, who is the chief's or sheriff's wife she's on the beach with the hotel owner of amity her name is mrs taft so she has a name oh and they're sitting on the beach and they're talking about how mrs brody uh how she can become an islander how she can be known as an islander and mrs taft says you can't be known as an islander because you weren't born here Mm -hmm. and it's really kind of very small scene and it barely passes but it technically does oh all right yeah so Mm. you know it's a bit of a bummer but at least it's not a big bummer yeah (laughs) (laughs) so let's see if it passes the more severe nancy's dream team test Hmm. one was the supporting cast at least 50 percent women heck no Two, did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? Nope. Three, was the final girl a person of color? Negative. Four, were there any openly LGBTQ characters in the film? No. Nah. Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. Let's continue. Mm, Yes. You actually uh, had some thoughts about Mrs. Brody's character, though. Yeah. She's, like, I love that she is... You know, she's like a wife and mom in the film, and that's a huge role for her. But she's also very, like, I don't know how to put this, like, laid back. But she, like, she knows what she wants. Like, she says to her husband, hey, you want to get drunk and fool around? And he's like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, they that's love the each dynamic. Other. Yes. And I love that because her husband isn't like, oh, well, no, I have too much work, blah, blah, blah. I just like how easygoing they are because you don't see that a lot in films from like the 70s and like sometimes in the 80s too because it's always like the woman kind of worshipping her husband who is a hard worker and you know like all this stuff. Her needs aren't really being met and it's not addressed in a lot of films but in this one it's very apparent and she asks for what she wants and that's amazing. She does, and her husband, because he loves and respects her, 
and he's also on the same page as her, yeah. is willing to go with her flow, which is mm-hmm. really cool. And then the same thing with her with him. Right. Like when he gets scared that their son is in the boat. Mm-hmm. And at first she's like, don't do that. Blah, blah, blah. And then she's like, oh, yeah. She sees the picture of the yeah. shark eating the boat. Yeah. And then she's like, get out of the boat. <laughs> like, <laughs> I love that scene. Me too. But like they're they're sort of on the same wavelength. Yeah. And wavelength. <laughs> yeah. There's going to be another pun coming up in a, eh, soon. You'll you'll so many you'll dad hear it. jokes. But so yeah, I absolutely agree with you cuz at first I thought, man, like all the women in this are either wives or secretaries or victims. And then I was like, okay, yeah, like that's it can be an issue, but I mean, secretary, at least that the older woman is working, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Mrs. Taft, she owns her own business and she's also a mother. And then Mrs. Brody, who just keeps everything freaking together, mm-hmm. is, you know, that's not something that we have to, that we should look down upon. And so, yeah, I think she's a really cool character as well. Yeah. And you also notice a lot of um, the time with films in this era, like, they kind of portray marriages, as, and I'm not saying every single film does this, but like... No, but a good majority, you're right. A lot of relationships and stuff at this time were portrayed as like, oh, my wife is, she's such a pain in the ass or whatever. And it's like unnecessary to the plot. Mm-hmm. So to see that kind of, I don't know, it's just a different... It's a healthy family dynamic. Yeah. And it shouldn't be like, oh, it's so weird that there's a healthy relationship in this movie. But it's right. Well, and you kind know, kind of frightening, honestly. Yeah, and you know, in the book, uh, I, I I guess she has an aff- an affair with Richard Dreyfuss's character Hooper, and they take that out. And I think people were a little disappointed, and I think the actress was a little disappointed because she was, she said in the documentary, she was like, I kind of wanted to have a sex scene with Richard Dreyfuss, but oh well. Oh my god! (laughs) So, um, (laughs) you don't think he's cute? He's cute, but I just, his character, the way that he talks... And, like, talks sort of down to people. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is what makes him not attractive to me. Right. No, you're right. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, she wanted she wanted that and it didn't happen. But I'm kind of glad that they didn't because then she just would have been another cheating wife mm-hmm. trope mm-hmm. in a film. Yeah. Which, I don't know. I feel like it happens a lot. And... Like you said, like, there aren't a lot of films, especially in that time period, where, I mean, you can argue even now, there are not a lot of films where married couples are actually friends. Yeah. And actually do things. And we talk about this in our Conjuring episodes. Oh, yeah. With Ed and Lorraine. I mean, Nick and Nora Charles from the Thin Man movies as well. Like, that was an example of, you know, people from the 1930s, a married couple in the 1930s who legitimately loved each other and mm-hmm. goofed around and said and did silly things and trusted each other. Yeah. Having a married couple on screen in all these different films and they, like, loved being married. Aww. I know. Because if you think about love stories, most of the time it's before you're married. It's the it's before the wedding. Yes, you're right. And then So you- there's that weird gap that, like, nobody talks about. Yeah, it's called marriage. Yeah. 
<laughs> the weird gap between first or that weird gap between dating and death. Yeah. <laughs> that awkward time in your life. Yeah. And so I kind of, yeah, I agree. I really like the, the strong family dynamic in this. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Okay. So with that knowledge, <laughs> let's talk about the shipwreck of a movie. <sighs> Wow. This film That's a was a good one. <laughs> I told you there was another pun coming. Okay, oh so this movie was an absolute wreck. So to start, the shooting schedule was supposed to be from May 1st until June 28th of 1974. And I believe the book came out that February. Don't quote me on that, but I know it came out earlier that year. Whoa. Yeah, Universal was like freaking out because they didn't want people to lose interest in the book mm. before the film came out. Which, I don't know, give the book some breathing room. Right. For me, because it's like, it's, anyway. So they got started right away. That was the shooting schedule. But by the beginning of May, when they were supposed to start, there wasn't a script. Okay. <laughs> but the studio was still adamant about them staying on schedule. So they had to shoot something. So they just started doing the film with an unfinished script. Whoa. By the time one of the drafts of the script was finished, Spielberg thought it was way too dark and disturbing, so he wanted to change it to be more lighthearted. And Benchley, who also wrote the novel, of course, he wrote the first draft of the script, and he just didn't know what to do. He's like, this is what I know. Yeah. And so Steven Spielberg hired his really good friend, Carl Gottlieb, who's actually in the film. He plays the mayor's like sidekick oh okay yeah yeah and he wrote for television and he uh did comedies okay so steven hired him to sort of like put in like the jokes and so almost all of the jokes that are in this film are because of carl gottlieb nice or they're improv by the actors mm. and carl gottlieb sort of like made sure that the humor sort of matched the humor that he added in the script as well so like he was also sort of maybe a script advisor i think as well gotcha. okay so it was kind of thrown together it was a script salad <laughs> delicious also the fake shark wasn't done by the time they were supposed to start shooting the technology that they were using then was like state of the art and so the engineers were like look we can make this in three years we can't make this in three months oh (laughs) spielberg and the engineers ended up hiring a man by the name of robert a matey to help design the shark (laughs) stop no, Mady. his name was Mady. Robert A. Mady was retired at the time, so they had to bring him out of retirement to help them make the shark. Now, the reason they hired him was because he very famously designed and created the giant squid from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Under the Sea. Under the Sea. <laughs> uh, the Disney movie. Yes. So I guess one of the engineers was like freaking out during the time they were making the shark. And he was like, there's no way that we're going to finish this. And uh, Robert A. Mady was like, there's always a way. Oh, my God. So he was like really keeping everybody up and and trying to get this freaking shark done. Amazing. This old retired guy who was like, Get your crap together. We're making a shark. <laughs> Which they named the shark Bruce after Steven Spielberg's oh. lawyer. 
which is also the name of the Great White in Nemo. Yes. And that's where they got it from. Bruce. Oh, my God. That's so great. Yeah. So a little bit of trivia there. I love it. Okay. You'll notice when you watch the film that the shark is not present for most of the film. In fact, about 80% of the film, the shark is not there. It's like an object is moving or a fin is there Mm -hmm. instead, like, you know, whatever. So they had to do that because the shark wasn't done. And I don't know. I think that that was a happy accident. Yeah, that's crazy because I think it's way scarier not to see it. Until, like, the final reveal. Well, that's how all monster, all good monster movies work. Like, Mm -hmm. you don't see the monster until the end. And, like, Jaws was not supposed to be that way. Like, you were just supposed to always see the shark. And I think the audience would have been jaded by it. I know. If they had seen it too much. I guess Steven Spielberg said, I had no choice but to figure out how to tell the story without the shark. So I just went back to Alfred Hitchcock. What would Hitchcock Mm -hmm. do in a situation like this? It's what we don't see, which is truly frightening. Yes. So because the film had a troubled shoot, it also went far over budget. David (laughs) Brown, one of the producers, said that the budget was originally $4 million. But the picture would end up costing $9 million. That was quite the gamble that Steven Spielberg took there. So, Like, crew members would call this uh, movie Flaws <laughs> instead of Jaws. Oh, no! Which is so dumb. But I can see them being very disgruntled and, and just calling it Flaws. Yeah. I don't know how the heck Steven Spielberg didn't throw up from nervousness every freaking day. Maybe I, he did. I don't know. I but he I mean you know he had a cabin I guess that he shared with Carl Gottlieb and Carl did say that he got to see the side of Steven that nobody else did, Aww. which was that he was a a nervous wreck. A nervous shipwreck. shipwreck. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I guess like he would have like these anxiety attacks and mm. yeah. I mean, I don't know how he did it. He pulled it together, and he finished that film eventually. But yeah, yeah a lot of people would like on the crew. I don't think respected him, and like were really upset. And well, because he was so young too, twenty seven. I know, He's yeah, a little baby. I mean, even the sound guy was in his seventies, and had been doing film forever. Oh my god! So you know, he was working with a lot of great people. Hmm. Um, another thing that people were upset about was that he also wanted to film on the actual ocean. Oh, my God. I would have been upset about it, too. <laughs> yeah, he wanted to film on the ocean, and he guess he had a chance to film on a back lot in a tank, and he was <sighs> like, no, it's not going to look real if I don't film on the ocean. And he was correct. Yeah. But, you know, that made the schedule go over by four months. Good Morning Nancy is proudly sponsored by Recess Coffee. We wouldn't be able to create such great content without being fueled by their magical beans. And the great part is, is that each batch of coffee is locally, artisanally roasted, and it comes from fair trade farmers. Gracie, what's your favorite blend? 
Oh my gosh. Okay, so my favorite blend is the Westcott blend. It has African and Indonesian beans mixed to create a clean, rich, and full-bodied cup of coffee. Mm. It has a rich floral vanilla aroma with a sugared almond flavor and a lemon finish. Yum. Ooh, delicious. My favorite is the Austin's blend. It's a unique blend of African, Indonesian, and Central American beans roasted to create a characteristically rich, dark, and smoky cup. It has a bold roasted nut aroma with chocolate flavors and a smooth, fruity finish. The coffee is seriously so good. I don't even have to put any cream or sugar in it. I just drink it black like my soul. (laughs) (laughs) So guys, head on over to RecessCoffee.com to order yours today. Or if you're a Syracuse local, stop by either shop at 110 Harvard Place or 110 Montgomery Street. So drink coffee, shoot lightning. Now back to the show. So the footage of real sharks was shot by Ron and Valerie Taylor, and they had previously made a very famous uh, documentary about great white sharks. So they hired them to do the footage of the real sharks in Australia. They decided to film uh, off of Dangerous Reef, which is a real reef in southern Australia. Oh my god. <laughs> and they had a short actor and a miniature shark cage to create the illusion that the sharks that they were filming were enormous. Oh, okay, okay. Because they wanted to get um, like a wide shot of Hooper, Richard Dreyfus, in the cage while Jaws is swimming around him. So they had a very short actor get in this cage. Oh god. And the freaking sharks, sharks actually don't attack people normally Mm -hmm. um if they do attack people it's because they remind them of something else like a sea turtle but normally sharks like don't want to eat humans i don't know why we're just not good i guess (laughs) we're garbage creatures so basically yeah we're garbage (laughs) we're the mcdonald's of the seafood world. listen sharks actually eat garbage (laughs) but we're still not good enough oh wow (laughs) (laughs) oh man okay so this shark would not go near the short actor in the cage because he was like, I don't, that's not food. I don't want it. Like, I'm not going to go near it. So he just sort of swam around it, but he never like touched the cage or like got where they wanted him to go. Mm -hmm. The tailors were like, we can't make the shark attack a person. That's crazy. Yeah. So they actually got the short actor out of the boat, I guess, because he was sort of trying to look like down to size. He also had a very small air tank. Oh. And just because you're a short person doesn't mean you don't breathe the same air right. as a tall person. <laughs> so he actually was starting to get kind of faint. So they had oh. to take him out of the cage and refill his air tank. While he was doing that, the shark attacked the cage Uh, and it got stuck uh, and it started thrashing because it's like teeth were stuck in the cage uh, so it kept and that's what you see in the film you see jaws aka the shark from australia from dangerous (laughs) reef and he like can't let go and finally he gets off of the small cage and then he swims away and they take and the cage is absolutely destroyed and they got that footage (sighs) So, of course, it's used in the film. However, in the script, Richard Dreyfuss's character is supposed to die in that scene. Mm. 
so they had to change the script. Oh my god. <laughs> so they could use that great footage of a real shark attacking a small cage. Uh, I say it's worth it. So the shark down in Australia rewrote the script and saved Dreyfus's character. Wow, good job, dangerous Reef Street shark. <laughs> Professor Mark Lapidula, who we mentioned earlier, he said, Before Jaws in 1975, movie endings were less motivated by financial gain. Because like he said, like movies didn't make a lot of money in theaters. Right. Yeah. Jaws enjoyed unprecedented box office returns. It also spawned multiple sequels, thanks to the improbable survival of its two main characters, who by all of counts should have died. <laughs> With such incredible ongoing money-making potential, Jaws birthed the modern Hollywood franchise. I, apparently... Hollywood films were totally cool with killing off their main characters. And, you know, after I read that, I thought, I wonder how many films before Jaws did major characters die in films. So I'm going to talk about spoilers for Easy Rider. And oh, I'm going to yeah. talk about spoilers for uh, Chinatown. Mm. So skip ahead if you don't want to hear the spoilers. But in Easy Rider, the main characters die. Yeah. In... Chinatown, the main heroine dies. Mm -hmm. And she's the one who's gone through all this horrible trauma. And you would think from a story standpoint, she would make it out alive and she doesn't. Yeah. Those are just two major examples. Um, there, If you really look at all of the films that came right before Jaws, none of them really end very happy. <laughs> yeah. And audiences were okay with that. Like, this was not a huge deal. Like, people were just like, oh, yeah, they die. Oh, well. Like, that makes sense that they would, you know. But then when Jaws came out, people expected their main characters to survive. I mean, it would have made the most sense for Quint to live and the two other guys to die because Quint is the most experienced. Yeah. It was just dumb luck that he happened to be like, oh, well, uh. <laughs> Okay, well, I guess I'm going to get eaten by this shark now. I mean, it's poetic, I guess, that he would die. I know, sorry. It's poetic. <laughs> I can see Dreyfus's character dying, and I can see mm -hmm. uh, Shaw's character dying. But from somebody who was born, I mean, you and I both have were born after the 80s. Like, mm -hmm. we are used to our main characters living. Yeah. And, you know, before that, people didn't care. So I thought that was really interesting. Uh, now, the 70s were a practical time. <laughs> Okay, so although principal photography was scheduled to take just 55 days, like we mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. it did not wrap until October 6th, 1974, oh after God. 159 days. Oh my God. Reflecting on the protracted shoot, uh, Steven Spielberg said, I thought my career as a filmmaker was over. Oh. He was 27. Oh, my God. I know. He goes, I heard rumors that I would never work again because no one had ever taken a film over 100 days off schedule. <sighs> Spielberg himself was actually not present for the shooting of the final scene in which the shark explodes, as he believed that the cast and crew were planning to throw him into the water when the scene was done. Oh, sort my of a God. Revenge. Yes, it has since become a tradition for Steven Spielberg to be absent 
when the final scene of one of his films is being shot. Wow. Yeah, so a little trivia there. Aw. So there's so much more to this very stressful and horrible backstory behind Jaws. If you want to learn more, I suggest you watch the 90-minute documentary called Jaws, The Inside Story. There's so much information in it. And as of this recording, it is on YouTube, so I'll attach it in the show notes. Okay, so I want to talk real quick about the soundtrack. So I was speaking, oh. yes, I was speaking to my sister Lily, who is also the composer for our theme song here at Good Morning Nancy, mm-hmm. and she was telling me, she said, you know, this composition for Jaws is so simple, and that makes so sense to me because Jaws is not a complex character. Nah. He's a shark and all he wants to do is kill. Yes. So, and she said the shark's theme is called like a fear motif. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's so cool. Characters? What a cool name for a band also. Fear, fear motif. motif. Let's do uh. it. <gasps> Hashtag fear motif. Hashtag Nobody copyright. steal that idea. <laughs> <laughs> we will hunt you down. After she said that, I, I really started thinking of like human characters and their theme songs and how they normally have like grand themes or they have like a lot of range to mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And it's because they're humans. Right. And Right. And we have wants and desires and we have like different missions when it comes to our stories. But Jaws has one mission and that's to eat. So it would make sense that his theme song is raw and like one particular feeling. Yeah. Cool. Right. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, it stands out. You you always know like what the Jaws theme music is. Everybody knows the Jaws theme. We all sing it like every summer in the pool or when we're swimming in a lake and we make fun we make a fin with our hand and yes it's it's a big deal what's so funny is that like imagine a world before jaws like when steven spielberg heard this theme he laughed yes and he said is that it oh my god and tom williams was like yes (laughs) okay abby yes did this movie demonize sharks um yeah (laughs) Yeah. For you. Well, yeah. Are you scared of sharks because of Jaws? Um, Or from something else? Well, I mean, it's in part to do with Jaws because I have always kind of been scared of them. Like, I grew up watching Animal Planet and stuff like that. So I I used to watch... So, like... You watched real sharks. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, like, I knew... I remember the first time I ever, like really remember seeing shark footage it was like a feeding frenzy because there was something that was in the water i don't remember what it was or what kind of sharks they were but it was insanely scary so i remember that and then my second memory was watching jaws with my sister and watching quint be like eaten alive oh yeah that scene is pretty wild it is wild and uh it was it it like emotionally wrecked me for a little while (laughs) but also like this i guess just like the sneakiness of it i don't like yeah like not knowing what's beneath you when you're swimming is it's always been scary to me yeah i'm not like a huge fan of the water unless it's super like clear blue Mm -hmm. yeah Huh, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a rational fear of sharks, as one should, because yeah. um, from what I understand, most shark attacks that do happen on humans are great whites, like Jaws, yeah. 
And I, th- I think it is wise to be careful because they are predators. Mm-hmm. It's like the same as a tiger. You know, it's like if you're a human and you're confronted with a tiger, you should use caution. Yeah. <laughs> same with a shark. Like they're wild animals and they're predators and, you know, they're scary. So you have to be careful, I think, no matter what. But I'm, I don't have this like horrible fear of well, them. I think for me, though, it's it's two of my fears like wrapped into one because I am terrified of like drowning or suffocating to death so to be like like bitten and then dragged under yeah so you're chief brody yeah i he doesn't like the water because he's afraid of drowning yeah (laughs) i mean like i can swim and everything i grew up swimming in like lakes and ponds and stuff like that but i don't know i just that's always always been a fear of mine so okay So Peter Benchley, I want to keep reminding people, Peter Benchley is the man who wrote Jaws, the book. Mm -hmm. He actually felt really bad that his book and then movie like made people like hate sharks. And in 2002, he told National Geographic, the theory that sharks target humans, that they are surrounded by sharks, the chances are 99% that the sharks have been baited. And it gives a false impression because by nature, sharks will stay away from humans. Yeah. So really, like like any animal. Oh, actually, did you know that Peter Benchley was like a conservationist of the ocean? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Like up until, I don't know the time he died i guess yeah okay cool well that makes sense yeah i think it's time for our final thought okay so there's been a lot of scholarly criticism some people think that this film like reflects the freaking nixon era like white man thing i don't know it's so some of these criticisms i can't get wrap my head around right i actually really like these criticisms on like the representation of female oh yeah females in this film and those are uh, wild yes all of these theories i guess about nixon era is whatever is fine but like i really want to talk about this gender of jaws the, the shark and how differently we can read the film by focusing on the shark's gender whether it's neutral male or female so uh let's discuss a little bit karen hollinger talks about phallic and yonic symbols in horror in her essay, The Monsters as Women, Two Generations of Cat People. She says in her essay that critics have been slow in investigating the connections between the horror monster and the female image and that Jaws has always been seen as a phallic symbol. Yeah, I could see that from the cover, especially. Yes, yes, exactly. And there's a woman swimming on the top Mm -hmm. and then there's a penis shark (laughs) about to get her. Um, it's like an unsolicited penis picture on Snapchat. <laughs> um, I know some people have said that Jaws as a phallic symbol could also kind of represent like the rage and like sexual rage in the three men that are attacking the shark. So like we have Quint, Robert Shaw, who's the spiritualist. We have uh, Hooper, Richard Dreyfus, who is the scientist. Mm-hmm. And the one who has all the logic. And then we have Chief Brody, who is Roy Scheider. And he's sort of the everyman. He's yeah. like the one who has the common sense, I guess, mm-hmm. rather than the intellect. Yeah. And it's sort of like all of these personalities who are 
that are in men, I guess, or anybody, really. Yeah. It doesn't have to be men, but in this case, I guess men, and they're sort of, like, fighting back, like, these negative urges that they have, and yeah. Jaws is that, maybe. Hmm. I don't know. I've heard that. I can't quote who that is. I know I read it's it. It's on the internet, Listen, guys. I know I read it in one of our resources, so I have attached all of our resources to the show notes, so it's in there somewhere. Yeah. So Barbara Creed wrote about the vagina dentata theory in her essay, The Monstrous Feminine, and she talks about how Jaws's jaws are like the sharp mouth that could represent the womb or the vagina. And like Quint, the spiritualist who is returning back to the womb, is possibly going back to be reborn because he's maybe done all he can. I don't know. Hmm. And then, um, you know, and then I also kind of thought of that as like, well, Jaws, if Jaws is supposed to be like the vagina, I can't believe I said that sentence. <laughs> um, <laughs> can't believe that's an actual sentence. Wow. Uh, like think of like his victims right like his victims are either the determined uh bad child who yeah. goes out into the water when he's really not supposed to uh the sexually active woman who dives into the water naked and the lone man who seems to be like have this really weird interest in those little boys yes. on the boat yeah which is kind of weird yeah and then of course the fisherman who are trying to hurt him yeah. or her or they. And um, it's so like the vagina would sort of represent like female rage and like uh, trying to overcome the. Yeah, guess, like the outside. Yeah, like the child, right? The or bad like child. the typical like things that women are supposed to take care of, sort of. Take care of or be afraid of. Yeah. yeah. And so it's, it's sort like of her like, rebelling against that. Yes. Hmm. So let us know what you think. <laughs> it's I I don't know. Like the more I think about it, the more I'm like, oh, I guess I could see it. I think when it's unintentional, it's kind of hard to talk about. Yeah. Because it's sort of just like I feel like it's reaching then if it's not intentional. Yeah. And I don't think it was. <laughs> But I don't think also, Steven Spielberg was thinking that when he yeah. made Jaws. And also, too, like, why even give the shark a gender? You know what I mean? Right. I think, it, because I think it, they call it he in the film. Yeah. But, I mean, I don't think anybody really wants to get close enough to tell. So. That <laughs> is accurate. You know. <laughs> I agree. But honestly, like, I feel like putting a gender to it doesn't really allow for a lot of interpretation across the board because it's it could be like everyone's own personal interpretation. There's a reason why the shark targets, you know, the young woman who's skinny dipping who is not supposed to be or like the child who is innocently swimming with his friends, you know. Right. It just I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure if I'm a fan of either of those theories. <laughs> Yes, so. so the third and last theory is by Carol J. Clover, who wrote Men, Women, and Chainsaws, and she says in one of her chapters, she talks about the intimacy of the killers in horror movies with sort of themselves, their weapon, and their victim, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, if we use Michael Myers as, as an example, Michael Myers, the butcher knife, and the victim, okay? Mm -hmm. So in this case... When we talk about animalistic 
killers like Mm -hmm. werewolves, the birds like from Hitchcock and Jaws, they themselves are their own weapons. Yeah. And she kind of points that out and she thought that was kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? I like that because it's like the shark is an autonomous creature. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And it's just like doing its thing in the water. Yeah. And it's also, I think it's kind of like that whole nature strikes back thing Mm -hmm. where like humans think that they are the apex predator and that they rule over everything else because we have um cognition that like tops the entire animal world and that kind of thing right so it's kind of like the shark is like no i'm gonna knock you down a couple pegs because actually when you're (laughs) you're in my house now like when you're in the water yeah and he's a and he's a rogue shark too so he's just (laughs) yeah so he's on his own and he has his own agenda he is not mating with anybody he or she is not mating with anybody Mm -hmm. there is like no there's no goal but to just destroy yeah and it's awesome it's amazing well because it doesn't it's not like it's destroying other like sea creatures that we know of no so at least not in this jaws oh well that was fun (laughs) yes well guys thank you so much for listening to this full-length episode about jaws check out our blog post at goodmorningnancy.com slash blog don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Good Morning Nan, Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. And if you really like the show and you really want to help us grow, check us out at patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy and just give what you can. Go head on over to our merch shop. It's at goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and buy a mug, t-shirt, buttons. Yeah, and also leave us a review on iTunes or whatever your favorite podcast app is. It takes like 30 seconds, but it makes a huge difference for us. So um, yeah, that would be super helpful. And as always, have a great morning and we'll see you next time. Bye.